0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: Life among Alcoholics Anonymous is more than attending gatherings and visiting hospitals, cleaning up old scrapes, helping to settle family differences, explaining the disinherited son to his irate parents, lending money, and securing jobs for each other when justified. These are everyday occurrences. No one is too discredited or has sunk too low to be welcomed cordially if he means business. Social distinctions, petty rivalries, and jealousies—these are laughed out of countenance. Being wrecked in the same vessel, being restored and united under one God, with hearts and minds attuned to the welfare of others—the things which matter so much, so much to some people no longer signify much to them. How could they? How could they? Under only slightly different conditions, the same thing is taking place in many eastern cities. In one of these, there is a well-known hospital for the treatment of alcohol, alcoholic and drug addiction. Six years ago, one of our number was a patient there. Many of us have felt, for the first time, the presence and power of God within its walls. We are greatly indebted to the doctor in attendance there. For although it might prejudice his own work, has he, although it might prejudice his own work, has told us of his belief in ours. Every few days... This doctor suggests our approach to one of his patients. Understanding our work, he can do this with an eye to selecting those who are willing and able to recover on a spiritual basis. And I give you Dr. Burns Brady.
2: Uh, my name is Burns Brady, and I'm an alcoholic. Uh. The format on how we're going to do this this morning is that uh, we'll go through this process of my presenting for the first hour, and we'll break it about 1025, and uh, then we'll come back after 10 minutes and go to a quarter to 12, so there will be two sessions with a break in the middle. That's what seems to be the best way to do it, at least in my experience. And I'm, for those of you who really don't enjoy the first part of the program, please come back to the second. It's not going to be any better, but God, I'll feel better if you come back. Again. <laughs> I mean, I really hate to feel less than, and if y'all don't come back, I mean, I, it's not that I know who you are. I just got all the seats counted, so y'all, <laughs> if you can't make it, send somebody in your place. <laughs> I don't care if you get one of the desk clerks, just send somebody, okay? They probably need it from some sort of compulsivity. Um, my credentials, uh, my professional credentials is I'm a physician. I'm, I was board certified in family medicine, did family medicine for 25 years in Louisville. Following that, in 1992, I left that job and uh, developed the Physician Health Program for the state of Kentucky for 16 years. I ran that program uh, with a staff, obviously. We dealt with 1,500 doctors in the, state of, in the state of Kentucky at that time. In 1989, uh, we there were three or four of us that decided to have a, phys- a, 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 a major halfway house, or basically a, an indigent program or a street program in Louisville. So we developed a healing place where we sleep 400 men and women a night and have 300 in a year-long program of recovery. Uh, that's where I fell in love with that population, whatever you want to call that population, the people who really have no resources. When I left practice, or when I left running the physician's health program in, uh, two years ago, I went immediately into the prisons. Wow. And I do this uh, on a voluntary basis, but they've given me uh, carte blanche right to do what I wanted to do in regard to what I thought God wanted me to do, which was what he's had me do, is we develop big book studies in the two major prisons in, in, uh, in Louisville or in Kentucky, not the one in Eddyville. We've got about 400 men that are currently involved in big book studies. Uh, and I'm talking about the 20-week big book studies. And now we've got actually some of the inmates running the big book studies like you would expect to see on a 20, 20-week study. So uh, when I walk out of that prison, I walk out of there walking on cushions. You know what I'm talking about? When you reach, some, you reach that point where you look right in the face of God when somebody looks at you and, and you know that for the first time in their life that they really do have an insight into what they are. How they got there and what the solution is. Uh, and that, I believe with all my heart that that's exactly what I've been being prepared for for 73 years. I believe when I hit the delivery room floor, God said, son, you're not as good as Bill Wilson, but you'll have a place. Just get your shit together and come on, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) And and so that, that's what it's, uh, that's, that's what it's been all about. I remember when I came into recovery, uh, I've been sober from, uh, from, uh, methamphetamine. I had two drugs of choice, meth for uh, 12 years, starting my freshman year in medical school. And I quit that in 1969 and started drinking. I didn't drink before that. And eight years later, I was drinking two quarts of whiskey a night. So I've had two drugs at two different times, both of which led me right into hell. Uh, so I have a great deal of experience coming from, uh, cross addiction or cross solutions to the irritable, restless, and discontent that we have. Uh, I've been clean from meth for 40 years. I've been clean from alcohol for 32 years through the message that God sent me through Alcoholics Anonymous. And I still attend five AA meetings a week and am involved in a substantial number of, uh, of big book studies. So that's my background. Now, what we're going to look at, it. Uh, when I first came in the program after about two years, I remember I was sitting looking at my sponsor and I said, I don't give a damn. That I've got a disease. Just tell me what I've got to do not to drink. Uh, and I hadn't had a drink in two years. He said, you damn well better care that you've got a disease because if you don't, one day you may get so spiritual you think you can take a drink. And I remember looking at him and I think, wait a minute. He said, we're talking about sick people recovering from a disease that is incurable. We're not talking about bad people getting good so that they can do the things they wanted to do to begin with to try to relieve what they wanted to relieve, don't even know that they're hurting. When I came up on the elevator uh, or came into the uh, hotel last night, I saw y'all congregated at the end of the hall. So I went down there and I I thought y'all were my people. Uh, And, you know, I mean, I could just tell from the St. Vitus dance and the picking of the nose and the picking of the butt. I knew that I was in a group of ADD people and I knew that was what I I was here to deal with. And uh, so I casually strolled over to somebody and I said, is this the addiction conference? She said, we don't call it an addiction. We call it recovery. I said, Oops, sorry. Is this the, is this the recovery conference, you know? I mean, hell hated by. I'm swear I didn't mean to fight. I just asked a question. So anyway, I mean, I'm on your side. Honest to God, I'm on your side. <laughs> is that okay? Is that better? Okay. My name's Burns Brady, and I'm an <laughs> I'll skip that first part, but it'll be on tape <laughs> so y'all, can, y'all can listen to So let's take a look at what this is about. You know, in working with others, <clears throat> Bill Wilson, it's a great way to, to, for me to inventory my own program is to look at the seventh chapter of Working with Others because it tells me the message I'm going to carry. To a new person who has a compulsivity, we're going to talk, it'll be primarily looking at at, uh, alcohol and drugs, but it can extrapolate right on into whatever we need to do to relieve whatever it is we're trying to get relief from. If there weren't a payoff to this obsessive compulsive behavior, then we wouldn't do it because the consequences are horrific. So, and, And if you run IQs on each of us, we're not going to be stupid. And I've got all kinds of discharge summers from psych hospitals that says I'm not crazy, you know, because they kept putting me in them because I kept acting crazy. But they finally decided I wasn't crazy till I got back out on drugs again. And then they put me back to decide maybe they made a mistake the first time around. So they're going to take another look at it. So the whole deal is what is behind this need for relief? What is behind this need for relief and what is it that we're looking at, not just in the brain chemistry, but in the psychological component and in the societal component? All the things that play a part in, uh, the way the disease develops, how I have it when it starts, and what I need to do to, to deal with it. You know, there's a wonderful line in the big book says, <clears throat> says, when we get into this self-imposed crisis that we could neither evade or avoid in essence, What an incredibly powerful statement and prophetic from a man who was writing in 1938. This self-imposed crisis. I did it. Which I can neither evade or avoid is basically what it says. I couldn't evade it and couldn't avoid it because basically I'm programmed to be irritable, restless, discontented. And I'm looking for relief. And I can't avoid that. Even the most conservative literature today says that 70% of us are here because we are programmed to be in in any kind of relief from a brain that is white hot that was the way we got it. Now, that doesn't, that does not in any way excuse me from the responsibility for my recovery, but it absolutely defines in many distinct methods at least for alcohol and drugs, now for eating and we're moving rapidly into sex and moving rapidly into gambling. And it's just a matter of maybe a few weeks, a few months, a few days until the brain chemistry is nailed in regard to that. The major breakthrough in eating has occurred in the last six months. And we're moving in that direction with what may be the seminal reason that we are hyperactive. Because we know that we are hyperactive. Wilson says when you go in and talk to somebody the fir- and read how, read working with others, real clear, you tell them about his illness. Silkworth said to Wilson, quit preaching. Tell him about the illness. Of course, all he knew was physical allergy and mental obsession, but it was pretty brilliant what he deduced at that time when all he could see was this is an abnormal reaction to alcohol, so it must be an allergy, Well, that has not proved to be true. It's more disease of brain chemistry, but it sure as hell is an abnormal reaction to alcohol, drugs, and other compulsive behaviors. He said, so tell him about his illness, then tell him about the spiritual solution. When you read the book, it skips a page there. And then the next page, and the program of action. I love what Wilson says. I just love it. He says, you're talking to a preacher, you know, 12-step call. And you're talking to the preacher, and the basically it's a preacher, it doesn't say it's a preacher, but it's someone who knows more about the Bible than you do. And he says he knows more than you know, what can you tell him about spirituality? But he is kind of concerned about how you can stay sober and he can't. So he says, what's the deal? And Wilson says, this man may be an example. He said, maybe, he doesn't say he is, but the next statement is real clear. He may be an example that faith alone is insufficient. It must be followed by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. The self-sacrifice, first three steps. The complete sacrifice of myself as the seminal power to correct my behavior. Completely different from the mental health model. And and unselfish, constructive action are the last nine steps. The program defines them as a program of action. Faith without works is dead. You know, I was, as, as Scott was, I was privileged to know Dr. Bob's son, Smitty. And every time I was around him for any period of time, he was the last person who was there. And every time I was around him, which was fairly frequent at that time, I'd just pick his brain about what was the white parts between the black lines. And I said, tell me what it was like when Bill was there with y'all. And if you've ever been to Dr. Bob's home, and uh, uh, if you ever get a chance, it might be worth going to, at least it was to me. But it's a modest home in Akron, a, a typical of that era. It was a brick house with a large brick porch on it with a little, you know, little, uh, uh banister. And you walked in the front door and it's just living room over here's a faux dining room with columns and the little dining room and there's the door going into the kitchen and back there the steps going up and smitty said i would come down in the morning burns and over here at the dining room table said bill would be sitting here with his back up next to the wall said daddy would be sitting here with his back up next to a table leg and mama would be sitting at the table reading to them from the bible and they would be reading from the book or the gospel of james and from Paul's letter to the Corinthians on love. And after that, he said, they began to read some of Emmett Fox. But in the book of James, and Wilson repeats it frequently, faith without works is dead. Self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. Faith alone is insufficient. The other place that he speaks to this in great glowing terms is when he's talking about, he said, those of us who spent much time in the world of spiritual make-believe have recognized the childishness of it. This has been, not childlike, childishness. This has been replaced by a great sense of purpose. Why are you here? At least I'm here to learn how to help somebody else. To be able to give away something that I've got. Rather than try to give away something I don't have. a great sense of purpose. our primary purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service. And the absolute certainty of the power of God in our lives. <coughs> so to dispel any fear that I'm a scientist, we've spent this period of time looking at what the spiritual solution means to me and how we will develop that as to how it works within the scientific model. Now, I'm a clinician. I'm not a neuroscientist. I am board certified by the American Society of Addiction Medicine. But I don't intend to be a neuroscientist. And if there are any neuroscientists in this room, let me make my amends to you because I can't go down to the cellar and talk about the last little micro molecule. I can go up to the first floor and talk about the things that I need to know to stay sober that tell me I've got more than just what I can pray away or wish away. But the rest of the program is pretty much all mine, what I'm going to talk about. It's what's been my experience, strength, and hope. Now, the other thing is I am computer illiterate. And they have given me a mouse that I can't get to slow down. The damn mouse goes everywhere, and I can't get it, so I'm not very well coordinated, and I'm not very bright, so I can go forward on this instrument of the devil. (laughs) Yeah But just to keep me humble, I can't get the damn thing to go backwards. So Steve's going to be up here to ridicule me every time I can't get it to go backwards, So I just want you' all to know what his purpose is in this room. He's not my sponsor, but I feel very comfortable that he's functioning in the same
1: capacity.
2: We're going to take an overview of the biopsychosocial model of the disease of addiction. Uh, alcoholism was defined as a primary disease in 1955. It was defined as a, as a primary disease and a drug addiction in 1987. Stanley Getlow, who is one of the leading icons in this field for years, and I will re, uh, refer to him repeatedly, called this disease sedativism, which automatically extrapolates it into the disease of compulsivity that could be related to sexual addiction, sexual dependency, sexual compulsivity, whatever term someone chooses to use in this journey that you will be having and you are having to get this as an accepted diagnostic disease hopefully in the DSM which to my knowledge is not there yet but to save my soul I'm not quite sure why it can't be sure there are a lot of people acting out that don't have sexual compulsivity there's a hell of a lot of people in AA drinking whiskey that don't have the disease of alcoholism and there sure as hell a lot of people in, in, in uh, NA that don't have the disease of uh, of drugism. Now, you asked me to tell you the, the players without a scorecard, I can't do it. So we accept all comers. You get in there and find a great way to live, and we don't really care what the hell got you in there so long as you think you, you realize that, that uh, basically you need to be there because you can't seem to do worth the damn without being with us. And that's just exactly, and we can't do very well without you. So this disease of sedativism was get This was in the 70s. He had enough foresight to know that anything that would change where I felt I was, was going to act as a calming influence on the brain. I could take methamphetamine and lay down and go to sleep. That's because I don't have a normal brain. Normal people take meth and they run around like a chicken with its head cut off until somebody wrestles them down to the ground and puts them to bed. But I could take it and go to sleep. So obviously it was a sedative even though it's a stimulant in my brain. And that's what Getlow meant. Uh. This is a chronic progressive fatal and treatable illness. Chronic is no known cure. My wife has diabetes. She uses a pump. I will promise you she's been a diabetic type 1 since 19, uh, for, since she was 26 and she's 60 now and has very few complications. She's done exceptionally well with her control. Uh, sometime during this day her blood sugar will probably be in the range of 200 on an occasion. Uh, and yet she's considered well controlled. Of course, that's not a normal blood sugar. Normal blood sugar is not 80 to 120 fasting and two hours later, and no higher than 160 one hour after eating. Our disease, certainly my disease, will be absolutely well treated today if I don't take a drink and a drug. And I've got 32 years to show that I've learned the rules and tools not to take a drink and a drug today. I have found an alternative method for sedativism. So it's a chronic disease. We have no known cure. The, as you see this presentation unfolds, you'll realize that there are at least 30 genes and probably 12 chromosomes involved in the research we've done or has been done since 2000 that are necessary to put together the disease of compulsivity and or alcoholism as we know it today. So there's not going to be a silver bullet. There is no known cure. Progressive two forms of the progressive nature of this disease one is uh, anecdotal where we tell people that we've seen in AA and you tell people that you've seen in SA I'm sure you watch the progression of this illness when people lose everything they've got just to satiate their brain and the closest chemical that's been associated with SA has been cocaine and its effect on the brain and what it lights up in the PET scan studies and things of that nature it captures the brain almost identical to cocaine and if you talk to a cocaine addict they'll tell you that their second hit was never as good as their first one i've worked with thousands of cocaine addicts and they continue to progress through diminishing return first hit is a pure hit second hit is after the brain has reestablished itself or reset itself and i'll show you what that means and they go right on down the line until it doesn't work at all it doesn't work at all And I experienced that certainly with alcohol because I reached the point where I couldn't drink enough to get drunk. I could stop the diarrhea, I could stop the shaking, but I couldn't turn off the bubble machine. It was roaring not only with what I started with, but roaring now with what I had done and the people I had done it to. And that shame was almost unbearable. I will toss out something that you can take home and play with someday That sustained shame. is I didn't say shame. I said sustained shame is probably the most self-centered thing that anybody can have. Because when I've got sustained shame, I basically am sitting as judge, jury, and executioner of myself. Judge, jury, and executioner of myself. I'm playing God. Very simple. Take a look at it. I didn't say it's easy. It's like this book. It's, it's very simple, but not easy. Destruction of self-centeredness. Uh, the other form of the progressive nature of this disease is what uh, Jelnick uh, talked about, or the first form is what we talk about when someone relapses and goes right on into complete deterioration, almost like Steven Spielberg uh, and a Dorian Gray deal. The other part of the progressive nature of this disease was what Jelnick described in the late 50s and early 60s. Take seven and a half year, mean year of drinking before the individual falls off of a cliff. Uh, he was defining adult alcoholism. Uh, adolescent alcoholism is an entirely different disease. The only commonality is that ne- neither of us can drink successfully. And Bill Wilson talked about this in the big book. He said women would be affected much more severely than men. He also said that young people would drink differently from older people. So in those cases, we may be seeing the individual differences in addiction our compulsivity, but the main overriding deal is what we're trying to deal with and the relief we have to find in a way that is both constructive without destroying everything that we love and ourselves. The other form of this is, and, and uh, this disease is fatal 100% if you factor in trauma. Harry talked about it last night, uh, or maybe John did, talking, it was John, talking about uh, trauma. If you factor in trauma, this, these diseases are 100% fatal. Trauma being homicides, suicides, the things that go with with those kind of things. Now, with alcoholism, what we see is a deterioration of the liver, the brain, and those kind of things like that. I will propose to you that in sexual compulsivity, uh, addiction, or uh, or dependency, that what we're going to see is the same organ deterioration, not by same not by the same chemical impact but by the changes that occur through the stress that is involved and the organ end organ problems that occur from living in that chronic stress condition. There are are also compounds that come out of the hypothalamus called cortisol releasing factors, CRF, still on the drawing board, that come out under stress with any compulsivity and create a red alert system of constant control because I'm terrified I can't live with the outcome. So I start to manage my life, which is a losing proposition from the minute I make that commitment. Those of us in this room who will relapse, and there will be some of us who will, whatever our compulsivity, it will always be over the second half of the first step. That's been my experience, where I'm trying to run my life, keep too many balls in the air, and even under the guise of wonderful behavior and doing wonderful things in service, I forget that my primary objective is to fit myself to be of maximum service. Not to be of maximum service, but to fit myself to be of maximum service. 164, can't give away what I haven't got. Can't give away what I haven't got. Treatable, this disease is eminently treatable. The disease of compulsivity is eminently treatable. Research has told us from back in 1988. That if we treat different populations correctly, we're going to get different percentages. Bottom line is, if we treat any population with the spiritual format, and when I get to the end of this presentation, if time permits, I will show you that the treatment in research today is clearly, for compulsivity, is a spiritual treatment. And the best delivery system is a 12-step system. Cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational enhancement therapy, all of those therapies are certainly augmentative under certain conditions. They don't work well as primary treatments. I don't give a damn what the research is telling us. You know, some evidence-based research sucks.
0: There just (laughs) isn't any way to get around
2: it. I mean, there's just no question of being around it. You have to look at the, you have to look at the study, you have to look at the cohort, you have to look at how it's done, the whole deal. But the consensus clearly today is the best treatment for compulsivity is spiritual. Now, each of us has to decide in our own mind what spirituality means to each of us. And the 12-step system delivers that message clearly. If people go to meetings, have a sponsor, and read the book and do the steps. When I came into AA in Louisville in 77, the whole deal was not so much going to doing the book and the steps. It was don't drink, get a sponsor, tell him what's wrong. Go, don't drink, go to meetings, get a sponsor, tell him what's wrong. With you. He'll tell you what to do and then go save a drunk. Left out that muddled middle. So I lived for 10 years on a three-step program. So what I was was a lethal weapon for God. <laughs> That's exactly what I was. If you wanted to get straight, you get behind me and do what I tell you to do, and you'll get sober. If you don't, you're a loser, so get the hell out of and get, get away from me. You know, and you can imagine I polarized everybody around me. You either thought I walked on water. That was if you were codependent. Or you thought I was an A-hole if you hadn't dealt with your own insecurity, you know so <laughs> So it was kind of an interesting place that I occupied, and finally I had an affair for three months when I was 10 years sober, because I never had any way to deal with my self-centeredness, dishonesty, resentment and fear, except tell my sponsor and go to a meeting. I said prayers, but they weren't relative to that. So I had an affair. God sent me the book because I guess he was tired of my running around doing what I was doing and I read that book and so I had a, what a 12 step program was and since that time for 22 years I've always been in at least one and usually two big book studies a week because that's where the design for living is. So I know what it's like to live out there with a three step program, what it's like to live with a 12 step program. 12 step program is wonderful. Three step program is really a crazy place to be. I had lots of faith, no works. Lots of faith, no works. And in many instances today, in 12-step meetings, we're not carrying the message. We're carrying the disease. We're just getting together so all of us can talk about it at the same time. <laughs> but we're not, I mean, we really are. Let's check in. Uh, what do you want to check? Well, I'm checking in because basically today I went to the, I went to the movies, and I came out and I saw some popcorn, and let's, I've had a good day. Okay. That's really wonderful. I mean, let's call it Popcorns Anonymous, you know. Now, if you don't agree with that, let me tell you, that's an outshoot of therapy. There's nothing wrong with therapy. When I ran the Impaired Physician Program, everybody went to therapy. They also went to four meetings a week and peed in a jar twice a week. They did all of those kind of things, but they went to therapy. They went to therapy so they could figure out many times where the bullets were coming from. We had learned a solution, but we didn't know why in the hell, why in the hell we kept getting shot. Because we didn't know a lot of the stuff that was going on. In any event, moving on, for wherever I was, I got that. Stay with me. I just wander around all over the hell of place. I place. I, I love to talk. And if you all stay with me, you'll learn to listen or you'll leave one or the other. <laughs> you know <where> you go. <laughs> yeah biopsychosocial components are the biopsychosocial model, which is obviously the best model we have today. This is not a brain chemistry problem alone. It's not a psychological problem alone, and it's not a sociological problem alone. Each of these are contributing factors. So let's look at the societal components. Now, I'm going to be talking about alcoholism, but you can extrapolate it into pornography. You can extrapolate it into movies. You can extrapolate it into virtually anything. And I know what it says about alcohol. You can go anywhere that's present if you're in fit spiritual condition and have a justified reason to being there. So I'm not trying to make pornography or I'm not trying to make alcohol as the demon. I am saying that it is the place that lights up the brain. It is the place that lights up the brain. And it's going to light it up even if you're in fit spiritual condition. The fit spiritual condition is going to be the thing that will give me the tools to deal with the reality that my brain has lit up. And there is absolutely no question that this is true. But if I'm in fit spiritual condition, I can carry the message wherever I need to carry it. So we look at society with alcohol. We live in a society which not only condones drinking, it promotes it. Our advertising is geared to drinking. The major brains in advertising are involved in the liquor business, most of them. And they have clever, fetching, attractive, seductive advertising. Life is good, but what makes it better? Alcohol. And the multiple places that the brain can be lit up with the different things that light up the brain within people with sexual compulsivities, if that's what you found is the major method that you can use for relief, It's all there, and you know it. Many parts of this conference will be allocated to talking about those seductions. Now, just in a metaphysical component, I call them the seductions of the devil. The devil always comes dressed in his best clothes. And for me, the devil's going to come, and I can tell you, I can draw a picture of the woman and she's got a $10 bill in her mouth, and she's riding in a new Corvette convertible. And by God, that's the devil coming dressed in his best clothes to me. I will promise you that's it. It ain't a whiskey bottle. It's how I'm going to get to the whiskey bottle and all the things that are there. All the things that are there. And the devil will come dressed in his best clothes. And the longer you're in sobriety, from my experience, and the longer you have these things together, and the longer I begin to be seduced by the delusion of what I'm doing, at least in my case, I find that the devil gets even more subtle. You know, when you read the chapter, uh, out at the 10th step, alcohol is subtle. Cunning, baffling, powerful doesn't mean that much to me. I agree with it. Boy, I know subtle. I know subtle. I really know subtle. And I'm not scared of it. It's just going to always be there. So if I stay in fit spiritual condition by starting my day with the 11 step, 7th step, 3rd step, and what I look at in regard to uh, love and tolerance, if I begin my, this is my program. I begin my day with that, live my day with the 10th step, which takes me to all the other steps, and close my day with the 11th step at night, I'm going to be in fit spiritual condition. That's my experience. And if I don't, I'm just going to start that little subtle slide. If last night when I went to bed, I didn't say to myself, I've been self-centered, dishonest, resentful, or fearful, being kind, and loving toward all. I looked at Scott last night. And people that I know, when I see them, I looked at Scott last night I thought, Scott's tired. For about five seconds, I got out of myself to really look at Scott. Five seconds is my length of time of endurance, then I have to go back to thinking about me. But for five seconds, for five seconds, I looked, this guy said, Linda looks good. Scott looks tired. And then this morning when I saw Scott, he looked like Scott. I said, you were tired last night. But that was part of my 11 step prayer last night. And I got up looking for Scott this morning to see how he looked. I don't need a medal, but that's the way to live. At least that's the way I've come to live, through this program. Uh, peer pressure. When I came back from treatment, I, between 1982 and 1987, I traveled the whole school system in Louisville or Jefferson County. Uh, I talked to probably 60,000 students during that time, all the way from the first grade to seniors in high school. And they called me one day to talk to this little gal who was six years, 6th grade who was using Coke. And they were asking her where she got it. I said, why did you do it? And she said, because... Sarah Jane, who gave it to her, said, if you don't do this, you're going to be all these four-letter words that we don't say don't want to be called. And I thought, yeah, the children do succumb to peer pressure. Let me tell you how adults do. When I came back from treatment, 41 years old, I belonged to a country club. I'd never belonged to a country club. I was born very poor. I was the first Brady who ever went to college. So a country club was a luxury. I used to caddy at the country clubs, but I didn't belong. And I was very sensitive. I recognized that I was caddying, not jumping in the swimming pool. And the book says, as alcoholics, we are sensitive people. As compulsive people, we're sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow it. That's spiritually. That's what that means to me. That's spiritually. But I joined a country club in 1970. That was, I had made it. And I mean, I drank whiskey like it was going out of style because I realized the in people drank whiskey. Plus, I really liked the way it made me feel, just like the amphetamine. But I had to get away from that because the consequences were getting horrific. Kicked out of medical school. Two years in psychiatric institutions over a period of time, almost court-martialed in the Army. I didn't quit amphetamine because I thought it whipped my butt. I quit because it had the consequences were so severe. Alcohol whipped me to where I I couldn't even stop drinking. But I started drinking. I found to get on the board of directors at the country club, what you had to do is drink more whiskey and spend more money. So I was on the board of directors. I was even chairman of the board. You know, that's directly related to your alcohol bill. In any, in any event, I came back from treatment after four months in Atlanta, and I was walking across into the, into the board of directors meeting, and a young man came up to me with a martini in each hand and he changed, said, uh, uh, You're Burns Brady, could you have this martini and talk to me? And I said, No, I'm sorry, I can't have that martini, but I'll be glad to talk to you after we get back. He said, I've heard about you, you can have this martini. And I said, No, I can't. And he said, Why? And I said, I'm an alcoholic. And he looked at me like I'd kicked him right in the private area. He said, Congratulations. They don't know what to do with us. You know, they, I mean, they, they just freeze. You know, the message is I wanted that drink. Not because I wanted the drink, I didn't want to be less than, rejected by, looked down upon. None of which was going to happen over the years, but it was my seminal fear. That I won't get the approval. Bill Wilson in 1953 wrote the most substantial thing he ever wrote for me other than the big book called Emotional Sobriety, a letter he wrote in 1953, 18 years sober. He said all of his problems came from money, power, prestige, sex, the need for approval. The need, the obsession of every compulsivity individual I've ever dealt with or been around is the insatiable need for approval. Those are the psychological components. and The brain is screaming, stop me, help me, calm me down. And the psychological is, would you approve of me? Tell me I'm okay. Tell me I belong. We'll get to that in a minute. So this peer pressure deal is an adult as well as a child problem. Psychological. Alcoholic personality. There's no such thing as an alcoholic personality. Uh, the current literature talks repeatedly about different things, but no more of the alcoholic personality. If you run MMPIs on us, you won't get a normal one. In no case will you get a normal one, and we'll talk about what that really means. But you don't get a consistent one. Mental illness. There's no more mental illness in the alcoholic population than there is in the normal population when you're talking about pure mental illness. Schizophrenia, bipolar one, psychotic depression. All of those things are true mental illnesses, virtually all of them with a genetic background. Now, the hooker in this thing is when we start looking at affective and mood disorders. There is a huge increase in affective or mood disorders. Wilson and and Silkworth described it when he said we're irritable, restless, discontented. He was looking at anxiety, depression, ADD, mood disorders, cyclothymia. But he didn't know those terms, so he would have defined them as irritable, restless, and discontented. And there's no question that each of us drink, and it's not going to be difficult to extrapolate it into the area of sexual compulsivity or any compulsivity, as I've alluded to earlier, for relief. There's no question that anxiety demonstrated by OCD, panic disorders, OCD OCD traits, agoraphobia, PTSD, and generalized anxiety. They put that last one on generalized anxiety in for all the compulsive people in the world. <laughs> all of us here in 12-step meetings because our compulsivity kicked our butts. Our disease kicked our butts because we're looking for relief. PTSD is the latest one on the scene and it is absolutely the one we can no longer back away from. I've never in, been involved with anybody in recovery who didn't have a major post-traumatic stress problem. Based on the horrific, the horrific life that we generated and many of us the horrific life that we came out of. And the PTSD is so deep you can cut it with a knife. It's still, yes. Gorophobia is the same thing as sociophobia. Uh, a person really can't stand to get out into people, uh, and it's a progressive type problem. Interestingly enough, because I appreciate the question. Interestingly enough, because people will start off being able to get in their car and drive to a meeting and go into the meeting and, and and do it, and then they get to where they can get in the car, drive to the meeting, stay for probably part of the talk. They can get to the car, drive to the meeting, can't stay. They can get in the car, can't drive down. Then they can't get out of the house, but they just stay basically trapped in that in that overwhelming disease of anxiety but it's mostly on a sociophobia or social phobia basis now you're welcome in an addiction conference we have a major addiction conference in louisville the last weekend in january we've had it for 10 years we'll have 15 of the top speakers in the country coming in talking on almost every conceivable form of compulsivity nicotine alcohol drugs sex uh the, the presenter this year in, uh, in uh, sexual compulsivity is, is Susan Campling from Philadelphia. And she's going to be addressing the issue of uh, domestic violence presenting as sexual compulsivity or vice versa. Sexual compulsivity demonstrating as domestic violence. And when we listened last night to Nancy and we listened to the two speakers, we see they use the term rape. I mean, we're talking about major domestic violence. Uh, She has had years of experience and has just recently taken over in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, uh, the Gentle Path program down there for the treatment of sexual compulsivity. Uh, And Susan will be there. But this is the kind of program it is. And if you want to talk to me about, uh, it'll be about two weeks, about coming. I mean, we're some of the top speakers in the country. The cost is $150. And the reason is because all these people come in and talk free. And if they charged their normal honorarium, it'd be 5000 bucks a pop for everybody coming in. We're talking about that caliber of program. You might want to consider coming at least, if not this year, next year. But in any event, we have major presentations on PTSD and how to deal with that spiritually. And it's amazing the number of people who have thought through spiritually this, this trap or that being hostage to, to these recurrences. The old typical helicopter over the car, under the car routine from someone coming back from Vietnam. We buy that. We're just now getting to the point of recognizing what we're looking at in the recovery process. Uh, depression, situational is exogenous. Familial is endogenous. Uh, when I was in practice, the last five years of my practice from 87 to uh, to 92, about... Uh, 90% of my practice was alcohol and drug problems or other compulsivities and almost invariably someone coming in to see me whether they were three months clean or whether they were 30 years clean was depression. And in in going through to to discuss with them the etiology of their depression if you do their family history and it's clean and you do their, their chemical history and acting out history and that's clean. Then basically, what we're looking at is someone who really may be clean, but they don't have a design for living. I'm in the program, okay? How often do you call your sponsor? Well, I call him uh, once every three days. What did you do a year ago? Every day. Why'd you change? I'm going to meetings. How many meetings are you going to? I'm going to three a week. How many did you go to a year ago? I went to five. How do you start your day? How do you live your day? How do you end your day? What are your tools? I mean, with almost 100% accuracy, I could tell you, nobody was following the program and thought they were. I gave them a copy of Joe and Charlie's tapes and said, you go out there and spend two weeks listening to these tapes, bring your sponsor back to me, and let's sit down and talk about your program. And in two weeks, they'd come back in with their sponsor and almost 100% say, I feel better. I feel 100% better. They were following their program. Uh In the situational or exogenous situation, basically that has to do with recovery. Also, remember, 100% of people coming into into, into treatment uh, are depressed. 60. When you're talking about drugs and alcohol, 60% will clear within six month within four to five months, just getting off their toxin. 30% will clear within the next year. Teaching them a new way to live. You're left with five to 20% who may need medicine. The critical piece today, the God-given advantage we've got is we've got better medicines. The disadvantage is we've got better medicines. (laughs) And consequently, we become complacent in looking at what is the treatment for the disease because rather quickly we reach for a prescription pad. Rather quickly we reach for a prescription pad because we are deluded into the idea that there's better living through chemistry and because we're using medication... That is not going to basically cause people to relapse. We're away from all the old Thorazine, Stelazine, uh, Amitriptyline, uh, the Valiums, as we know, and all those other things. Basically, we've got that. So we don't have to be as focused. We need to be more focused. We need to be more focused. People coming out of treatment almost invariably walk out with a sleeping medication of some sort. Usually... I'll, I will grant you, it's a trazodone, which we think isn't a bad medicine. The hell it isn't. It's not a bad medicine for everybody, but it carries some risks. And they've got a prescription of Prozac. That's not going to cause them to, to relapse. Most of the time now, it's Lexapro. They'd be a hell of a lot better off if they are going to be on an SSRI if they were on Prozac. They've got a serotonin receptor site sensitivity in Lexapro, and you never know for sure how it's going to work. And this is my experience. Prozac is still the gold standard if anybody needs it. The one thing I have seen for sure, and I'm not anti-medicine, I'm anti-ignorance, and I'm anti-self-centeredness. And any person coming to me who says, I'm not feeling right, let's tell, tell me about your program and then we'll see if you need medicine. When I talked to some of those people who obviously didn't have a program, I immediately sent them to an addiction psychiatrist and they got on medicine. But it takes knowledgeable people to reach for the big book before they reach for the prescription pad. And if there are any mental health people in here that find that objectionable, you got to realize I'm on your side too. I'm not a great fan of doctors with a prescription pad. And I'm not a great fan of mental health people who believe that this is still a mental health problem. Yes, ma'am. Talk a little bit about what, honey?
1: Negative side effects of a drug like Trazodone.
2: Yeah, Trazodone will also, some of the people that we've seen on Trazodone, we will see them develop a, both a physiological, or at least a, A psychological and usually physiological dependence on the trazodone we also now know now that our data tells us that people on trazodone whether it's spurious data or not have a higher instance of relapse from people who are not on it now from the actual action within the brain we got to realize that what we know about addiction today is about 90% more than we knew 10 years ago and it's about at least 10 or 15% still in the dark so why is that true? It just is Plus the fact that trazodone really isn't that effective. It's just not that effective. One of the post-acute withdrawal syndrome symptoms, and we'll get to that. Bill Wilson described the first one. He said for a year he couldn't get a job because he was racked with waves of self-pity and, and resentment. The post-acute withdrawal syndrome published in 79 says there will be screw-ups in sleep for two for six months to two years. Simple problem-solving and stress management will be screwed up for six months to two years. Uh, Short-term anti-grade memory will be screwed up for six months to two years, sometimes as long as three to four years. And during that period of time, at least in my experience, which has been pretty significant with thousands of people, Uh, I have found that uh, even the trazodone for a short period of time is not going to remain that effective. Uh, But to learn learn better sleep hygiene and to learn better spiritual hygiene is a much better way. Learn what to drink after what time of the day. In other words, cut out your caffeine, cut out your smoking, cut out the things that have to do with increasing dopamine and more physical alertness uh, after a certain period of time and do it for the right physiological reasons as well as spiritual reasons, and then learn to use your support systems. I used to call my sponsor, sometimes two and three times a night when I couldn't go to sleep. I would come home and go to bed. Casey and I would pray, then we'd go to bed, usually make love. Part of that was because I really enjoyed making love with Casey, and part of it was because it relaxed me, and we'll talk about that too, with the outpouring of of dopamine and especially the outpouring of beta-endorphin that occurs at the time of orgasm. Uh, It's a major, major, major brain sedative that occurs at that time. And uh, we know that a lot of people on cocaine will masturbate incessantly. The reason they're masturbating is because basically it's calming the brain down with its own endogenous opiates, which have been burned up a lot through the process of what's been going on. But at the same time, this is done to try to quiet the roaring that goes on. And then when I'd sleep for about an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, I'd get up and call my sponsor. And he'd tell me to go fix a warm glass of milk. And I'd go fix that. What he was doing was breaking out tryptophan. Now, he didn't know that, and I didn't know that. But I don't think that made a damn anyway. I think what made a damn was his voice. And then I would call him back again an hour later, and, and he would tell me the same thing, and I'd finally go to sleep for whatever reason. Now, I have not seen Trasodon be it a, 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 a long-range Beth method. Uh, I see it seeing it's better living through chemistry. Let's develop the spiritual process and let's develop the sleep hygiene process. And then we'll reach for medicine after we've done sleep studies. Does that help? Yeah. Um, there's a parent increase in ADD and ADHD. Uh, say a parent because no one's sure. If you realize dopamine is a uh, are, uh, uh most compulsive disorders are related to a dopamine deficiency, and they certainly respond to a dopamine excess, and or at least a dopamine response. Uh, and so ADD partially fits into that. It's now called the disinhibition syndrome, which may mean there are other mechanisms to be used. The reason for looking at this is because we illustrate this irritable, restless, discontented part. We will even see some people say that when they smoke dope, that they it really helps with their ADD and i think what we're going to find in most diseases of compulsivity and i'm sure we found it in eating disorders this is the last major breakthrough and i'm 100% sure we're going to find it in sexual compulsivity it's a down regulated endocannabinoid system the brain has its own has its own uh, marijuana system Brain has its own system, and we'll point it out in a minute, has its own endogenous opiates, has its own endogenous stimulants, has its own endogenous valium, it has its own endogenous nicotine through the nicotinic receptor sites, it has its own brain chemistry, now we know it has its own internal marijuana system. And the cannabinoids are what dampen or bring relief or satiation. And we know now for the first time that in eating disorders there is a major screw up under genetic control of the endogenous cannabinoid system. And I am a hundred percent certain could be wrong, I'm <laughs> not in doubt today, but I could be wrong uh, that we're going to find in sexual compulsivity it's a it's a disease of in a, un, a disease of lack of satiation control based on a, a regulatory mechanism that fails, and it's going to be the endocannabinoid system. That's projection. I know it's true in eating, and a year ago, we didn't know that in eating. Further research today shows us in certain areas of the brain that have to do with perception, they are just like they've been stroked in eating disorder patients. They look in the mirror, and they don't even see what they see in the mirror. Uh Clancy, like him or hate him, has some brilliant presentations that he does. And in one of his, he calls this disease a disease of perception. Now, we call it the peculiar mental twist. And the way we think ourselves back into a drink, because we haven't dealt with our character defects, so we get irritable, restless, discontinued. Read Jim's story. Jim's story says, let's talk about the thinking. Then he tells us all about Jim, including having a nervous disorder. Y'all remember seeing Harry last night? You don't think Harry's irritable, restless, discontented. Hell, you haven't sat long enough to look. Harry's a classic example of a worm in hot ashes. He's a spiritual giant because he's bringing us the solution that enables him not to be hawking his wife when she walks out. She could be wrapped in a toe sack. As far as that's concerned, he liked her clothes. He'd like her clothes, he'd like her naked, he'd like her in shoes, he'd like her without shoes. Because he needs the satiation that goes with that because his whole internal system is not being able to get satiated. And that's a brain system. That's a brain, I never feel like I'm enough, it's enough, we're enough, the whole deal. Never enough to not be irritable, restless, and discontented. Uh, Stanley Getlow teamed with a brilliant young researcher named Lynn Henneke in the middle 70s. They studied a decent cohort of people at that time and came back with two findings. This one's critical when we're looking at the psychological component. He found that every alcoholic, remember this was alcohol and drugs, but we're looking at all compulsivities, that all alcoholic and drug addicts had a compromised relationship with a parent of the same sex. And, and Getlow, who thought that Freud basically didn't deserve to live. That's what he thought about Freud, and I think he's probably right, but whatever it may have been, he came back and reviewed, and I'm telling you that story because he came back and reviewed all the data and presented this at, at CAD in 1978. I'd been one year sober. He said, I'm telling you this is true. Every alcoholic and drug addict has a compromised relationship with a parent of the same sex. And I remember thinking, my daddy's one of the best men I've ever known. And he was died in ninety two. My God, my daddy it was one of the reasons I never had a grew up very quickly because I always thought he was the benchmark and I could never be there. Uh, went through the process we all go through to reset point and we are what we are and we're serving in God's army and that's the way it is. But in any event, I went up to Doctor Getlow after the after he presented that and I said, Doctor Getlow, my daddy is one of the finest people I've ever known. He said, Tell me your story. And so, born very poor. This was in the middle thirties. Still, the depression, just as severely as it had been in 1929, even worse in some instances. Daddy always had three jobs, at least no at least two, sometimes three, for the first ten years of my life. So he was gone to work in the morning before I got up, and he came home at night after I'd gone to bed. I saw my daddy consistently for about two or three hours on Sunday morning, we went to church. My mother raised me. Most of my skills, communication skills, are female. Uh, and I'm not being chauvinistic. It just means at least what I know is I listen better. I nurture better.
1: Can you speak up, please? We have a in the next
2: room. Is that better? Okay, yeah. I nurture better. I basically am a nurturer. I learned that from my mother. All of my male skills I learned, from, I learned from dirty books and locker rooms. I played in my first football game when I was in third grade or fourth grade in high school. It was an organized football game. And all of my male skills came out of that. And as you well know, the measuring stick for success in men's locker rooms is an entirely different way than it does the rest of the world. But for those of you who didn't get it, I'll just let it pass. Anyway. <laughs> If, y'all, if you're too wounded to even talk about it, then God, I need to start back at a more fundamental level than that. The, uh, <clears throat> but that was exactly what it was. And where do we learn our coping skills? Where do we learn how to live in a world as a grown-up? Big brothers and big sisters functions very well. So do 12-step programs. They give us Sponsors. Sponsors, ideally, should have X amount of time of recovery. They should have gone through the big book. They should have been sponsored by somebody who went through the big book. They should be sponsored by somebody who got sponsored, as we heard last night. All of that should be a part of it, but they should virtually be a surrogate parent because we're all little boys in grown-up clothes. And I would venture to say we're all little girls in grown-up clothes. I work all extensively with men. And there are reasons for that because I think the role modeling, it hasn't got to do with sexual boundaries. But I think the role modeling is critical. I think it is absolutely critical. My first sponsor taught me when you can learn to work with your own kind, you've got a prop, you've got a, you have got a prop, you have got a probability of success until you learn to work with your own kind being the same sex. And I've watched it, you've watched it, 13th step in the whole deal. Y'all work programs that may be much more, I guess you do, much more focused on the sexual aspect. AA, I talked to a man last night that I adore, has been sober for an extended number of years, has come into uh, to to SA because in X number of years, which is substantial, no one ever took him through a sex inventory. And I've been sober 32 years. He's been sober longer than I have. Never took him through a sex... I'm not saying that's the only answer, but I'm talking about the ineptness of a program that doesn't focus on its step design for living. And in many respects, y'all today are more blessed than we are in AA because you're really on point. You're new. You're vigorous. you're you're, You're stimulated. You're working the principles truly because... That's just it's new, it's vibrant. And I've watched AA get so damn complacent at times. It's the only place that I could ever live. It's my home. They're my people. But when I got my 32-year token the day, I said, some of y'all piss me off so bad that you can't imagine how much you're good for my program. Because by the time I <laughs> by the time I get home and I'm working on my resentment against your sorry ass, I get closer to God than I've ever gotten in the last 30 minutes. Yeah. A compromised relationship with a parent of the same sex. Now we're going to look at the biology. We're looking at uh, the genetics and the biochemistry. Yes. I just want to say, my dad was So that's what you're Yes. Yes. Right. It can be death. Divorce, active alcoholism or some compulsivity. It can be all of those things, but there's a, that's why I use the word compromised relationship. That, that thing that's supposed to happen didn't happen. Now, that has nothing to do with the brain chemistry, but if we're looking at a biological, psychological, and sociological model, and you know in the sociological model, AA has it very interesting, train, change playmates, playpens, and playthings. Even the big book addresses the issue of you're separated until you can get back on a different basis, you should stay separated. Or if you're not going to stay separated, everybody gets back on a different basis. So we're looking at at a 12-step spiritual resolution to problems other than just brain chemistry. We're going to look at the brain chemistry now, but that's your point. It's exactly right. There is a compromise in that relationship where what is supposed to get passed on didn't. Or whatever was passed on was compromised. Is this sound coming back there better now? Okay. Uh, yes. Just one question. Where the, uh, the father, my dad, was um, compromised to the point where my mother uh, wore pants and, and and racist. So the value system
1: I have is mostly the current of him. Is that what he referred yes. to? Yes.
2: Absolutely. And we even get, as a wonderful line in the book, The Family Afterward, where daddy's come back from treatment. Mama's been wearing the pants in the family. He's learned a whole new way to live, but no one's transmitted that to her. So she's still running life like it was run, but there's, we're playing on two different planes and it, it's all hell breaks loose. Now I didn't have that with my wife, but I had it with my partner in practice because he had been the grown up and I had been the, charismatic physician and was good at what I did, both charisma and practicing medicine, like any other twenty year old, you know, that was bright and aggressive and assertive and funny and things like that. But he I came back home now with new directions to be a grown up. But with him it was business as usual. So we used to sit down and talk every Monday morning for an hour and I'd go in almost every Monday and I'd say, I'm pissed off. He'd say, Well, why are you pissed off? I said, I don't know. I'm just pissed off. He said, Well, who are you pissed off at? And I'd say, You. <laughs> now, we went to college together and we were just closer than that and still are. He'd say, Well, you know why you're pissed off at me? I'd say, No. He said, Well, okay, I love you. And I think, Well, screw you. Of course you love me. <laughs> How can we possibly fight with that stupid answer, you know? <laughs> This is the part where you say, well, I hate you, I hate you. And then we fight. I understand that, you know. You see what I'm talking about? This is why it's a family illness. And without the family getting better, it damn, we heard a beautiful little skit last night. And that was, that was a presentation of this kind of conflict. Somebody had their hand up it's back. Break. Break time. Okay, I'll take, after this question, we'll take a break. Yeah, but I've been given a great gift to make it extremely easy to understand. So don't worry about it.
0: I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve,